a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 14 and 15 in just a minute. But first, let me give you another invitation to our class. If you're not already involved in a Sunday morning small group Bible study, I just want to ask you seriously, I'm, I'm seriously, if you're not, please pray, at least pray, ask God about it, maybe about coming and checking out our Standing Firm Bible study class. We meet every Sunday morning, 10, 15 a.m. We've been in room 209, but I think we're moving to room 216. Watch for the signs. But it'll be over there in the Family Life Center at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. You can learn more about it if you're interested by going to AboundingJoy.com. There's a menu item called Standing Firm Bible Class up at the top menu. You might want to hit pause right now and take a screenshot or take a picture with your phone so you can remember how to find it. A few weeks ago, on December 19th, we were assigned for our Bible study time, chapters 13, 14, and 15 of Exodus. <laughs> and I spent the entire time on chapter 13. That's the chapter, you may remember, where God tells us about how they were to redeem their firstborn sons, remember, and, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A lot of fascinating truth there. But I think chapters 14 and 15 are incredibly significant too, and I don't think it would be good just to skip over them. And I realize when I talk like this that we just can't do this with the whole book. There are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, and we're only given seven sessions to cover them. So we can't do more than just kind of an overview of most of it. I understand that. It's, it's always an impossible dilemma. <laughs> you know, if you're following a study guide, the Gospel Project curriculum is a wonderful curriculum, but it works its way through the whole Bible in three years. <laughs> and I could say, well, I don't care. <laughs> I want to camp right here for a while. I like it right here. I want to stay, whatever book we happen to be in. It happens to be Exodus now. Next time it could be another one. And, and don't get me wrong, there, there could be a time for just camping out for a while in a book. I, I know that. But when we do things like that, we have to keep in mind there's a whole lot more to God's Word than what we're studying at that moment. And every time we spend extra time in one place, we are, by necessity, spending less time somewhere else in God's Word. So all I know to do is pray for wisdom and maybe try not to get too far behind. <laughs> There'll be times maybe when I can just do a quick overview of some of the chapters. We'll have to do some of that. God ended what we call chapter 13 of Exodus by telling us how he led the Israelites with a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. By the way, we're not told how big those pillars were, that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. I tend when I'm not thinking about it too much, just using my imagination, I tend to picture them as monstrously huge pillars going way up into the sky, you know. But it's possible God may have made them larger at times and maybe smaller at times, depending on the situation they were in. There may be a little clue to that here in chapter 14. We'll get there in a minute. But God led them in what seemed to be, humanly speaking at least, a really strange way. We talked about that before. If we'd been there watching them, it would have seemed that they were just wandering around aimlessly at the edge of the wilderness. Now, God had more than one reason for doing that. He had several reasons, but at least one of the reasons involved his plan for Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, 
between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. It's interesting, isn't it, how God's messing with Pharaoh? God's using Pharaoh to get glory for himself. God knows Pharaoh's heart. And God is intentionally leading Israel in a path that humanly, like I said, makes it look like they're confused. And he's doing it deliberately. He's setting a trap for Pharaoh. Now, I would assume, and I could be wrong, I'm not trying to be argumentative here, but I would assume that the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire are relatively small at this point. It's possible that Moses and those with him could see the pillars, but they may not have been visible from a great distance at this point. There were times uh, later on when the pillar, the Bible says, was standing at the doorway of the tabernacle, and God spoke through it to Moses. When I read those passages, at least for me, it gives me the impression that they were roughly man-sized standing in a doorway. And if Pharaoh had been able to see them towering up high into the sky, like I said, I tend to imagine them, he might have been a little less eager to pursue them, maybe. Although by now, you know, Pharaoh is so obviously demonically crazed and irrational. I'm not sure that's even true. In any case, verse 5 says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we've let Israel go from serving us? Isn't it interesting how quickly Pharaoh seemed to forget the horror of the plagues? <laughs> but obviously he'd become dependent on having such a huge slave labor force. And in his mind, apparently, he just couldn't imagine doing without his slaves. He didn't know how to continue without his slaves. He knew his country had been decimated, but he apparently thought the only way he could possibly rebuild Egypt was on the backs of these slaves. He had to have them back. In his mind, it's the only way he could do it. And, and maybe with some demonic help, probably, he had convinced himself that the worst maybe is over and, and that the only hope, the only source he's got of rebuilding his nation after the devastation of the plagues is get these guys back. So he's going after them. Now, I think there may be a lesson for us here, too. The Bible teaches that when we trust Christ, he, that's God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's just what happened when we trusted Christ. But you can see the parallel, can't you? When Israel was brought up out of slavery in Egypt, it pictures the way Christians have been brought up out of slavery to sin and out of slavery to Satan. Very obvious parallel. But even after God brings us out of Satan's kingdom, Satan will still try to go after us. He'll try to tempt us to listen to him. He may have lost his power over us. He certainly has lost his power over us if we're in Christ. But we still have to resist his deceptions and his temptations. Pharaoh was irrationally persistent. So is our enemy, Satan. Now, I know we can't push that analogy too far. Sometimes we try too hard to make too many things fit, and it doesn't quite work. Because even when they're finally rid of Pharaoh forever, and even when they get to the promised land, 
there's still battles to be fought, but they're not fighting Pharaoh anymore. You know, Pharaoh's not involved at that point, but they're still fighting. And as Christians, of course, we have to do battle against Satan and his demons throughout our lives here on earth, even though we've been delivered from our enslavement to him. So he, Pharaoh, made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Wow, he certainly got the military equipment he needs. Those chariots that Pharaoh had were state-of-the-art war machines in that day. It would kind of like be in our day for us to learn that an army was coming after us Christians and they had jets and they had aircraft carriers and they had smart bombs and you know, it's pretty terrifying stuff, isn't it? And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So once again, as we try to identify them, it would be like us trying to get away from a massively armed enemy that's coming after us when we suddenly realize we are trapped. Now, God seems to take a great deal of pleasure <laughs> in bringing his people into what seems to be a hopeless situation just before he delivers us. He uses those kind of situations to teach us to trust him. And also, that way, when God does deliver his people, everybody who is aware of it can see that the glory obviously belongs to God, not to us. We couldn't have done it. We couldn't have come through that mess on our own without him. There are lots of experiences like that in life. And by the way, I think he's going to do it in a big way again just before the last great deliverance of his people at the second coming of Christ. Everything's going to seem utterly hopeless. And then right on time, Jesus said, like lightning streaking across the sky from east to west, Jesus is going to show up. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. So at first, it clearly seemed like a trap for Israel. But in truth, it was really a trap for Pharaoh. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. <laughs> now, when we stop right there and don't look at what follows, that sounds like a pretty good response. But when we start reading the next verse, we realize this, this was a prayer that wasn't, definitely wasn't a prayer of faith. Look at verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. People can get so used to slavery that it just doesn't seem so bad. It's normal. It just becomes their normal way of life. And there are many, many, many people today who are horribly enslaved to Satan and to sin and they just call it normal. It's kind of just the way things are. And they're content just to stay in that enslaved condition. They don't realize what a joyous thing it could be to be set free if they would just turn to Jesus. So sad. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, 
stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So we can tell from verses 11 and 12 that the people certainly have no confidence in God, but Moses does. Even though at this point, as far as we know, Moses doesn't know how God's going to do it, but Moses has just seen God at work enough to know that God's not going to supernaturally bring them through all they've been through this far and then allow them to be recaptured by the Egyptians. He just knows somehow, some way, God's going to take care of this. And there's a lesson here for us <laughs> as we age <laughs> and when by his grace we get to the stage of life that Vicki and I have reached, for example, most of us can look back and see how God has brought us through several very, very difficult, fiery trials in our lives. It wasn't easy, but when we look back on it, it should help us because now we don't get quite so panicky when the next one comes. <laughs> if we just stop and think, wait, God's brought us through all those other fiery trials. I reckon he'll bring us through this one too. <laughs> and he will. I'm not saying it'll be easy. It won't be easy. Almost always it isn't easy. Sometimes it's extremely painful. But God is always with us to carry us through. He will. Always has, always will. So he tells them, first of all, they're going to have to start by stopping their panic and just waiting a bit on the Lord here. Stand firm. As horrible as the situation seems, it's not time to do anything just yet. Don't jump into the sea. <laughs> Don't run into Pharaoh's arms either. Just stand still a minute. See what the Lord does. <laughs> it's pretty common for the Lord to lead us into situations just like this. And for the moment, now be really careful here. Stay with me all the way through. Please think with me here. For the moment, all we can do and all we should do is wait. Wait on him and look to him until we know what to do next. Now stay with me, <laughs> because as is so often the case in dilemmas we get into in the Christian life, there are two ditches here that we Christians can fall into, and we don't want to fall into either one of them. So listen, some of us are wired in such a way that we feel like we always have to be doing something that we have to fix the situation, whatever it might be, we got to fix it. <laughs> and sometimes what God wants us to do is take a deep breath and just wait on him. <laughs> this, I'll tell you what this brings to my mind. I can't tell you the number of times my wonderful wife has had a dilemma of some kind, maybe at work or frustration of some kind that she's running into and she's struggling with, and she's going to share it with me. And she will beg me before she shares it. She'll say something like, please don't go into fix it mode. I don't need you to fix anything right now. I just need you to listen and maybe help me pray, pray about this, pray it through. Because some of us just feel compelled to do something when it's really not the time to do anything yet. When we really need to be waiting on the Lord. But I told you there's another ditch. Watch out. <laughs> Look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? 
tell the people of Israel to go forward. <laughs> so evidently, even though Moses himself is confident that God will come through and he knows they don't need to panic, Moses does realize time's getting short here. <laughs> Something has to happen. And it's going to have to happen pretty fast from his perspective. So apparently Moses has been crying out, Lord, Lord, we, we need some direction here. Well, what are you going to do? What do you want us to do? And now the Lord's saying, Moses, okay, you can quit crying out to me. It's time to do more than pray. It's time to move forward. It's interesting, isn't it? God seems to be saying to Moses, okay, there's a time for praying and waiting. And there's a time to stop waiting and start moving. So there's a time for waiting and there's a time for doing. And we can very easily get the two confused, sometimes almost intentionally. We have to be very careful. We have to learn to be discerning. We have to learn to follow the Lord's lead. We don't try to substitute prayer and waiting when it's time to obey God and do whatever God is leading us or commanding us to do. When we know what God wants us to do, but we really just don't want to do it, <laughs> it may be tempting to say, okay, Lord, how about if we just pray about this for a while? <laughs> Sometimes we know what he wants us to do, but it doesn't sound pleasant or it doesn't sound easy. And so we just say, mm, I'd rather not talk to that person. I'd rather not have to say that. And, and it makes sound kind of pious to our own ears. How about we just pray? Uh, praying is good, right? That's a good thing. <laughs> but there's a time, guys, when more prayer and waiting is not the answer. I'm not saying you need to quit praying, but sometimes it's time to quit waiting. <laughs> we just have to learn to be discerning. We have to pray for wisdom to know, am I supposed to keep praying? Am I supposed to keep waiting? Am I supposed to pray and act? Charles Spurgeon gave a good example of, of a time when praying and waiting are not appropriate. He told about a man who was reluctant to give up a particular sin that he was, had in his life. And, and Spurgeon said, there's a favorite sin of which he's long been guilty. He doesn't give it up, but he says he'll pray about it. <laughs> God says to such a man, why do you cry to me? Give up your sin. This is not a matter for you to pray about, but to repent of. <laughs> the man says, I was asking for repentance. Ask if you will for repentance, but exercise repentance as well, Spurgeon says. There's a time when you just have to do something. Verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Fascinating, isn't it? God doesn't tell Moses to say a certain magic incantation of some kind. God doesn't even tell him to preach a sermon of some kind. God doesn't make him promise to make a difficult pilgrimage of some kind. He just says, lift up your staff. <laughs> just stretch out your hand over the sea. God's going to do the hard thing. You can't fix this, Moses. God's going to do the heavy lifting. There's no way you, for you to fix this. But you do have to trust God, Moses. And you do have to cooperate with God, Moses. And you do have to obey God will fix this thing. You just stay with him and obey him and keep your focus on him. Verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. He's going to show the Egyptians that he is truly indeed Jehovah God, the great I am. 
And every time God works on our behalf, every time he delivers us from evil, every time he gives us a victory, he's demonstrating to our enemies. And when I say our enemies, I'm talking about Satan and his demons. But he's also demonstrating to people who are enslaved by our enemies. God's showing them, anybody who wants to look at it, that he himself really is Jehovah God. And he has power over all the power of our enemies, just like he had power over Moses' enemies. So here at the Red Sea, once again, he's going to demonstrate that fact with great power. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness... And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the same cloud that had been leading them now moved to protect them. It's keeping the Egyptian army away from them until they can get through the Red Sea. And, and evidently God made it stay dark for the Egyptians. They couldn't see a thing. But he gave light to the Israelites so they could see their way through. It's amazing. After all of this, Pharaoh will not turn back. He's like a madman. He can only see one way out for himself and his nation to recapture these escaped slaves or, or die trying. But there's an important lesson for us here too. Think about this. The same God who's bringing light and salvation to one group of people, the Israelites, is bringing darkness and destruction to another group of people, the Egyptian army. At the same time, same God. On one side, we see God's protection and his love and his salvation. On the other side, we see judgment against rebellion and sin. Same God. Every time we start talking about God's judgment and his divine wrath and his punishment of sin, there will always be some people who look a little horrified and they will say something like, mm, my God just wouldn't do that. And their God may not, but their God is a God of their imagination not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is both a God of intense, passionate love for his people and forgiveness and grace and patience and mercy toward anybody who will repent of sin. But he's also a God of holiness who's promised not to let the guilty go unpunished. He's a God of perfect justice and judgment against sin and wickedness and evil. And divine justice is not a bad thing. Satan would like for us to think it is. But it's wonderful. If we could see sin like God sees sin, we'd understand a lot better. When we have a problem with God's righteous judgment, it's usually because we just don't think sin is such a big deal. But it is. It's far more horrific than we realize. But God's provided a way for us to escape his judgment and his wrath against sin by trusting Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took that wrath of God for us. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. You know, scholars and archaeologists have never been able to agree about exactly where the Israelites crossed over. Some scholars think because of earthquakes maybe and droughts and floods and things like that that have occurred over the past 3,500 years since the Exodus, that today's geography might not be the same as it was then. It's possible. But here's a map of the area to kind of show you what we're talking about. It's conceivable that at the time of Moses, the Gulf of Suez reached farther north up along where the Suez Canal is. That makes sense to some people. 
Others have speculated they really didn't cross the western arm of the Red Sea, that's the Gulf of Suez, but they crossed the eastern arm, which is the Gulf of Aqaba. Those who believe it was the Gulf of Aqaba also believe Mount Sinai is in Arabia, on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba, instead of at the Sinai Peninsula. I think that's what the Muslims believe and teach. But of course, it's not just limited to Muslims. There are Christians who believe that as well. But it seems to me, it seems just a little far for them to have wandered all the way across the Sinai Peninsula before they ever crossed the Red Sea. From Goshen to the northern part of the Gulf of Suez was around 65 miles or so. That makes some sense to me. Of course, it could have been less than that day. We don't know. But from Goshen to the Gulf of Aqaba is around 200 miles as a crow flies. It's a long way to go. So for what it's worth, which is not much, but my guess is that they crossed in the northern regions of the Gulf of Suez. Wherever it was, though, please don't, don't miss this. It was a mighty miracle. Some of you may have heard some of the silly liberal explanations for this great miracle. I remember when I was young, I heard these kind of things. Uh, they, they claimed that, well, what happened was the Israelites crossed over in a kind of a marshy area. And when Pharaoh's chariots tried to follow them, the chariot wheels may have gotten stuck in the mud in the marshy area. And some of the Egyptians may have actually died before they got out. And so later on, the Hebrew poets made up what liberals claim to be a fictional story we have in our Bible. That used to be a very common belief of, of people who call themselves Southern Baptist leaders. It's when neo-orthodoxy was rampant in our seminaries, in our Bible colleges, back when I was younger, in the 50s and 60s. We had many seminary professors who really didn't believe the Bible was God's Word at all. Oh, sort of. They say it contained God's Word. But that was before the conservative resurgence a few decades ago in the 70s and 80s. But anything supernatural in the Bible <laughs> seemed to always make these guys squirm. They weren't comfortable with the supernatural. It's amazing to me. They didn't want to accept that God is a supernatural God. And so he does supernatural things. <laughs> you know what I think the truth is? I could be wrong. But I think they had such a strong desire not to be ridiculed by unbelieving scholars and such a strong desire to be accepted by the so-called academically elite that pleasing men became more important to them than pleasing God. I think it's sad. That's always tempting for some of our most high-profile spiritual leaders. It can be pretty heady stuff. They want to be accepted by the people who are considered by everybody to be part of the elite. It's going on right now. makes it very hard for some, they're called spiritual leaders anyway, but it makes it hard for them to take a biblical stand on certain issues, like the sexual revolution, or the gender revolution we're in the middle of right now, or this revolution moving us towards cultural Marxism. So many are pushing it right now, these kind of things in our culture, and if you take a stand against those things, which you should if you're a Christian, of course, because they're very unbiblical, very non-biblical, very anti-biblical. But if you take a stand against those things, it's going to cost you. It will cost you some of the esteem of the so-called elite. And the followers of those people may leave your church. The givers may quit giving, and these guys don't want to be canceled. <laughs> and so pleasing men has become more important than standing firm and pleasing God. It breaks my heart, and I think it breaks God's heart. We need to be standing firm, right? It's interesting how there's more information about the crossing of the Red Sea that was revealed much, much later to a man named Asaph. You remember Asaph? Asaph was a very godly worship leader 
during the reign of King David and later King Solomon. And God used Asaph to write 12 of the Psalms we have in our Bible, as well as to lead that worship in that day. And God revealed some things about the Red Sea crossing to Asaph that are recorded in Psalm 77. Remember, this is God's word. This is not just his imagination. Verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So God gives us some more detail here in Psalm 77 through Asaph than he does even in Exodus, and he reveals a little bit more of what an awesome event it really was. Okay, back to Exodus 14, verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let's flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And once again, God chooses to get Moses in on what he's doing. Obviously, God didn't need Moses to drown the Egyptians, but he chose to use him. It's a beautiful illustration of the way God lets us get in on what he's doing. When he moves us to pray, maybe in a certain way or for certain people, or he assigns us opportunities to talk to somebody, maybe to encourage someone to repent or encourage someone to make a right decision, or maybe to share the gospel with someone, or maybe to share some evidence that God's left that will help them realize they really can trust the scriptures. You know, God could do all that stuff without us. And many times we wish he would, don't we? Because <laughs> many of us find those kind of conversations difficult. Sometimes very difficult. We're afraid of rejection. We may not like it. <laughs> and sometimes we try to delegate back to God what he's delegated to us. But he chooses to work with us and to give us the great privilege of working with him. And we don't need to try to delegate it back to him as if somehow we were unworthy or if we could make the excuse, oh, I'll just mess it up. Or maybe I'll just make somebody angry. God, you just need to do it without me or whatever reason. <laughs> It's very tempting to pray something like this. God, why don't you just do it some other way? Just leave me out. I'll just mess everything up. I'm a, I'm, I'm a goof up. <laughs> you realize that's what Moses tried to do. Remember when God first called him back in Exodus 3? God often chooses to work through his people. And we should consider it a great honor and a privilege. And not just try to opt out of the assignment by saying, oh, I'm too humble. <laughs> That's, a, that's silly. Or I'm too dumb, or I'm too weak, or I'm too whatever. The dumber, the weaker we are, the more likely God will get the glory. He, he, he likes to use dumb, weak people. We're all dumb, weak sheep, right? I'll never forget, a man told me one time, he would never dream of trying to share Christ with someone else because he said, I'm not worthy to do that. And it sounded so noble the way he said it. <laughs> but it was a way he had figured out to make himself sound humble and make himself sound pious. When what he was really doing was being disobedient to God. It's just that simple. At the same time, God's showing the Israelites, Moses is my man. Notice the one I'm using here. I'm going to use Moses. Yes, I know he's weak. Yes, he's got 
problem with confidence sometimes. And yes, he can be kind of stubborn. And But in spite of his problems, I've chosen to use Moses to lead you. So I want you to pay attention to him. God's kind of singling out Moses here. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, just like God said. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. So the threat from Pharaoh and his mighty army has finally come to an end. And in a way, again, I see a little bit of an analogy here to some of our New Testament truth. Pharaoh, of course, is a type of Satan. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he redeemed us from our enemy, the devil. Jesus rescued us out of slavery. He purchased us and we're not slaves anymore. And he stripped Satan of his power over us right then. So in the New Testament, we have these spiritual warfare passages that he gives us to remind us of that very truth. Like this one in Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, God the Son, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. Actually, the Greek word there is render powerless. Render powerless the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus took his power away. This one's in 1 John. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's taking his power away. How about this one in Luke? Behold, Jesus said, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions. He's, he's using serpents and scorpions as metaphors for our spiritual enemies. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. His power is taken away. Satan's power is gone. Here's another one from the book of James. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. His power is gone. We have the power in Jesus. So because of what Jesus did on the cross, we now have power over Satan. But that doesn't mean we don't have to fight. He doesn't just run off and stay away. He's, he's clever. We're still engaged in warfare. We still have to resist him. He's still very aggressively and actively trying to convince us, persuade us, manipulate us, or intimidate us to do things his way. It's the only way he can hurt God now. And that's why we're reminded in Ephesians chapter 6, we really are at war and we've got to stay in the battle even though we're fighting an enemy over whom we have power because of Jesus. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We have an enemy who is aggressive, but we have been given power and weapons over him. But Jesus didn't just come to give us power over Satan. He did that. But he came ultimately to do away with him. The next stage in Satan's defeat is going to happen when Jesus sets up his kingdom here on earth to reign for a thousand years. During that time, all of us who are trusting him will be serving Jesus in our new, resurrected, glorified, eternal bodies. It's going to be a glorious, exciting time like nothing we've ever experienced before. We can hardly imagine it. And Jesus is going to remove Satan from the scene entirely. This is in Revelation chapter 20. And he... That refers to an angel from heaven. And he, the angel, seized the dragon, that's ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
And maybe we can see a hint of that, maybe when God moved the pillar of fire between Pharaoh and the Israelites, because at that point they were totally separated from Pharaoh. He couldn't get at them at all. And then finally, when those thousand years are over and the final rebellion against Jesus is crushed, Satan's going to be cast into the lake of fire forever. Look at this. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, these are prophecies and truths, but they're wonderful spiritual warfare verses. Because even though I think Satan has to know his own destiny, I don't think he likes to be reminded of it. He knows what's coming, and he knows his time is short, which means he's going to be as aggressive as he can be to hurt as many of God's people as he can. But he doesn't like to be reminded of his end. And he doesn't like to be reminded, I don't think, that we know it too. But it's good for us to remind him, and it's good for him to know that we know (laughs) that we not only have power over him now, but we know what his destiny is. We know that he's definitely going to be cast into the lake of fire. And because of Jesus, we no longer need to be any more afraid of the devil than the Israelites needed to be afraid of Pharaoh after that sea closed back up. <laughs> and when these prophecies are fulfilled, we're going to be in the same position as those Israelites who were seeing those dead bodies of their enemy on the seashore. They knew their old enemy was gone forever. We'll get to experience that feeling in the presence of Jesus one of these days. Verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Notice that's the second time God mentions that the parted waters were a wall. First was back in verse 22. We saw it a little bit earlier. So the foolish idea that they might have just mired up in some marshes is silly. If you're, just, if you're going to reject the supernatural parts of God's word, why not just reject the whole thing and go over and join the secularists? If it's so important to you that secularists respect you and not ridicule you, well, maybe that's the best way to get it done. But so many people try to straddle a fence. Jesus said, you can't do that. You need to decide who you're going to serve. But some so-called Christian leaders, by the way, have done that too. They have crossed over and said, we're, we're giving this stuff up. It's a shame. It's very sad, very tragic. Verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God let the people see their enemies lying dead right out there on the beach. They didn't have to be afraid of them now. They didn't have to worry that maybe the army escaped on the other side. Maybe they'll come back around and find us, come around the lawn. No, they're gone. (laughs) Now, whatever Satan's trying to do to us, It's really good for us to remind ourselves of some of those verses I mentioned earlier. It's good spiritual warfare stuff. And realize Satan is a defeated enemy. Oh, yes, he's a roaring lion, but he's on a leash. And we need to remind him we know the truth about him. We know the truth about his fate. We're not afraid of him anymore. It's very important for a Christian. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So at least for the time being, (laughs) they're going to trust God. But very soon, when the going gets rough, they're going to start whining and complaining again. Now, in the next few verses, we have a song. It's a poetic description of what God's done. It's a song to exalt and praise the Lord, to praise Yahweh. Now, there are many, many such songs of praise in Scripture, especially in the book of Psalms. But you can find them all over the Bible, especially in Isaiah and Revelation, but they're scattered everywhere. But this song right here 
in Exodus 15 is the very first one recorded in Scripture. And it turns out to be pretty important. You'll see why in just a minute, but we want to read it. So let's see if we can capture something of the energy, the joy, the excitement, the thrill that these people must have had at this point in time. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. <laughs> well, you're getting used to this by now, but we used to sing another scripture song based on the King James Version of these two verses. So if you know it, sing it with me. It turns out to be a really important song, like I said. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength, my song, is now become my victory. The Lord, my God, my strength, my song, is now become my victory. The Lord is God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. <laughs> you can hear a little of that Jewish rhythm in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can almost see the Jewish girls dancing, Hebrew girls dancing all around. Yeah. You remember that song? Notice he starts by singing, I will sing unto the Lord, not unto the Israelites, not unto Aaron, not unto Miriam, not to the elders. His focus is on Yahweh. And in verse two, he says, God is his strength and his song and his salvation. If you think about it, you realize, you know, he could have said, and there wouldn't be anything wrong with saying it this way, I don't think. It would have been true. He could have said, I'm strong because the Lord gives me strength. I can sing because the Lord gives me a song. I'm saved because the Lord saves me. That's true, isn't it? I mean, it wouldn't be wrong. But the way he says it keeps more of the focus on God, doesn't it? Do you notice that? It isn't just that Moses is strong because God makes him strong, even though it's true. It's all about God. God is his strength. God is his song. God is his salvation. This is worship. He's praising God. I hope you love to praise and worship the Lord. Vicki and I just love praise and worship for what he's already done for us. And personally, I'd like to give it all I've got. Satan wants to cheat you out of it. But I want to sing with all the energy I can muster. I want to worship God well. I want to put my whole being into praising him. He deserves it and much, much, much more. But Satan is always trying to get in the way if he can. He hates it. Satan hates to hear any of us truly praising the Lord. So he's going to try every trick he's got to keep us from doing it. And once again, watch out for the ditches. He tries to intimidate us. He wants us to think we're not being respectable. He wants us to think people are going to laugh at us. He's going to want us to think we're being too spontaneous. We need to stop and think things through. He wants us to think on what other people might be thinking about us instead of focusing on what our awesome God has done. 
he may try to tell us we're just trying to show off. Or he may try to tell us, ah, oh, you're just trying to get attention. You know, or people are going to think you're trying to get attention. You know, or, or people are laughing at you. You know, on and on and on it goes. And he loves to get those kind of thoughts in between us and God. So we're not really focusing on God. We're not really worshiping. And if he can't push us into that ditch, sometimes he'll try another ditch. It works with some people. Some people are really susceptible to Satan's attempt to try to get them to generate kind of a fleshly enthusiasm. Maybe trying to actually really are trying to impress people with their freedom or trying to turn praise and worship instead of praise and worship. It becomes kind of a cheap fleshly kind of cheerleading kind of thing. Have you ever been in a service like that? I have been. I know what that's like. So Satan loves to push us into either ditch if he can. Keep us from real worship. So every time we engage in worship and praise of our great God, there's going to be a certain amount of spiritual warfare involved at the same time. Satan resists it. He hates it. But when we get it right, I tell you, he's also allergic to it. He runs from it when we finally get it right. If we can forget about ourselves and concentrate on the Lord and realize it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says about us, it just doesn't matter. It's pretty powerful. (laughs) But I suspect that even at best and even when we're most energetic in our worship for God and, and we're we're as sincere and passionate as we can be, I suspect that our praise right now, at its best, it's very subdued compared to what it will be when this flesh is gone and we have our glorified bodies and Satan is removed from the scene and bound for a thousand years. (laughs) I think when that time comes, and it will come, it's coming, we're getting there. I think our enthusiasm and our excitement and our passion is going to just boil over and be something to behold. I really do. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. But, but the wonderful thing is, guys, listen, we don't have to wait till the end. Please don't say, well, one of these days when I get my new body, I'll really worship the Lord. Do your best right now. We get to practice now. Think about how good God is. Think about how good he's been to us. Think about his attributes. I'm telling you, worship and praise will turn your life around. Now, I'm sure that Moses had worshipped and praised God many, many times before this moment. But now, with the dead bodies of Pharaoh's armies washing up on the seashore, he realizes, wow, that old enemy's done. He's gone, and he's exulting in praise of Yahweh. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And some people read that and say, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Lord's not a man. This is what we call an anthropomorphism. It's, It's poetry. So we've got to take that in consideration. But he also could be anticipating the day when God really would become a man. Jesus is Yahweh. God the Son is Yahweh. And he's fully man as well as fully God when he was born in Bethlehem. And then third, there were some times in the Old Testament when the pre-incarnate Son of God did appear for a brief time as a man. We call those appearances theophanies. But the focus here is on the fact that he's a warrior. He has enemies. We have the same enemies. They're fierce. Satan and his demons are deadly enemies. And of course, they have many, many, many men enslaved at their disposal. Many, many men are demonized. And many, many men are determined to hurt God and hurt God's people any way they can. But here's the point. God is not a wimp. God is not going to allow those enemies to triumph forever. He's a mighty warrior, and he will bring utter destruction on his enemies. Watch and see. Well, the praise continues, but for time's sake, let's skip down to verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, 
pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. <laughs> you see, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, they would hear all about how God brought Israel out of Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh's army. This was huge news, and it would terrify them as it should. Do you remember later on when the Israelites finally reached Jericho? That would be about 40 years after what we're reading right now. And the spies had gone in to check out Jericho, and they were hidden by Rahab. Do you remember what Rahab the prostitute told them? Look at this. It's in Joshua chapter 2. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? God had a reputation that went before them. Awesome. All right, back to Exodus 15. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They're still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You'll bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you've made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So Moses is rightly confident here that what the Lord has begun, he will certainly complete it. He doesn't know how long it's going to be. He really doesn't know how difficult it's going to be. He just knows God is faithful. God's proven himself again and again. God's removed his fiercest enemy now. He knows he can trust God. And so should we. He's defeated our fiercest enemy too. He has a glorious future for us. He's promised. We don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know what kind of difficulties and trials we're going to have to go through. It's going to be tough. But our confidence is in our God, just like Moses. Verse 20, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. So Miriam leads the women to sing and dance to the chorus of this song of Moses that he's already been singing. So she's singing it too. Now listen, heads up here, if you're kind of tuning me out, tune back in. In the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, right at the very end, we're told after God begins to pour out his wrath on the kingdom of the Antichrist, near the very end of that horrible time, just, just as the bowls of wrath are about to be poured out, we're getting very close to the return of Christ at that point. We find the people of God who've overcome the beast praising the Lord. And I want you to look at chapter 15, verse 3. Look at this. And they sing what? <laughs> they sing the song of Moses, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Isn't that amazing? They're still singing the song of Moses. <laughs> this is not just a song for the Israelites after the Red Sea. It's a song for us 
and it's a song for God's people in the future. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord is God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. Verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. After a great spiritual high, it doesn't take long for things to go south. I'm guessing they were all carrying some water. Maybe they had a lot of water in carts or in bags that were slung over pack animals. Uh, no doubt they had been able to find some water along the way. This is a wilderness. That doesn't mean it's a total desert. Uh, but now they don't have any water. And with such a large number of people without any evident water, it's not going to take long for panic to set in. Our bodies need water. They knew it. We know it. We can't go along without it. So God brings them water. But when they find water, it's bitter, marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water and the water became sweet. So as always, the Lord takes care of them. He makes the bitter water sweet. Can you ever remember experiencing a time like that in your life? When it seemed that God had led us to something we looked that looked sweet and we thought it was going to be sweet and refreshing and then we're terribly disappointed later on. It turns out to be bitter, a source of bitterness for us. Just as an example, I don't know, this may not be a perfect example, but some people may pray that God would give them a child. They desperately want a child and Finally, the child that they prayed for so long finally comes. And then later on, that very child chooses to rebel against them and rebel against the Lord and causes great pain. And it seems like what looked like wonderful spiritual blessing and refreshment turns out to be kind of bitter. And we have to remind ourselves that doesn't mean hope is gone. God can make bitter things sweet again. You need to keep praying. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. The Lord your healer. That turns out to be one of those wonderful compound names of God we've talked about before. You may have heard it pronounced Jehovah Rophe, or you may have heard it pronounced Jehovah Rapha, uh, the truth is we don't really know what those ancient vowel sounds were of the Hebrew words. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Hebrew in the Old Testament, it, when it was written, all written Hebrew, was written only with consonants originally. They didn't use any vowels at all in the writing. Now, people knew how to pronounce the words because they'd heard them all their lives, but now we don't know what they sounded like, so we usually kind of guess at it, and my guess is Jehovah Rophe. Of course, sometimes God heals supernaturally, but here, did you notice he associates it with keeping his commandments and keeping his statutes? And when we carefully study his commandments and his statutes that he gave them, we find several of them that would undoubtedly have kept them more healthy than the Egyptians or than anybody else around them who weren't doing these kind of things. For example, if they obeyed God and the kinds of meats he told them to eat in that day, the meats that were called clean, that would have made a huge difference because unclean meats often carried parasites in that day. Circumcision was another one. It wasn't just a ceremonial or a covenant issue. It was a health issue. Reduced UTIs and the instance of cancer in both husbands and wives. God told them to wash in running water. 
He knew about the bacteria, but the people didn't until many centuries later. He told them to separate themselves from people who were sick, and they had to wash or burn contaminated clothing. He commanded them to bury human waste away from the camp. When moms had babies, they were considered unclean for a couple of weeks. You know what that did? That gave them time away from their ordinary chores to help them recover, and it gave them time to get off to a good start with their babies. It was a really wonderful blessing of health. And of course, obviously, if they obeyed God's moral laws, they would not be afflicted with STDs like the rest of the world was eaten up with, still is. Not only that, but if they keep their focus on God and live His way, you know what that does? It decreases stress level. It decreases anger levels. It gives them better mental health, emotional health, and physical health as well. So Jehovah Rophe would teach them to be more healthy and avoid lots of diseases and sicknesses, and sometimes, of course, heal them supernaturally. Okay, we need to stop here for now. Maybe we can pick it up here next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Your word is filled with awesome truth that reveal more about you, that help us to realize and appreciate how great you are, what great things you have done, how you deliver your people. Lord, you teach us so many beautiful, powerful things all the way through your word. So help us to be good students of your word. Help us to listen well. Help us to internalize these things and help us to... <laughs> just to live more like you're teaching us to live. Help us to bring you great glory and help us to learn to worship you well and not be intimidated. Help us to learn to praise you well. Help us to learn to walk with you, to study your word effectively and to listen to you carefully and, and just to be the kind of people you want us to be that will bring you a lot of glory. And Lord, if men give us glory because we're doing things that you've told us to do, Help us to always be faithful to pass all that glory to you because we know it's you working through us when you do good things and you get the praise, you get the honor, you get the glory. So keep it that way, Lord. We want to keep it that way. We don't want to try to steal any of it from you. So thank you for the blessings. Thank you for this word. Thank you for what you're going to do in our lives as we pay attention to you and grow stronger in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.